Ladies and gentlemen, it's 1979 and the Eon Productions team take a sharp right turn. They're supposed to be doing for your eyes only, but then a little film called Star Wars comes out and breaks box office records for space adventure. Let's, once again, the beautiful tones of Shirley Bassey welcome you into Raven Bond as we get ready to discuss Moonraker. And here with me, as always, is my co-pilot in the space shuttle that is this podcast. It's Stuart Lakes. Hello, Natalie. Hello, everyone. We're here to talk about Moonraker. No, no. We're here to talk about Moonraker Girls. It's very different, okay? Sure, sure. It's very different. It is very different. And speaking of very different, we have a very different co-host for everyone today, a long-time fan of the Game of Thrones podcast and a regular attendance at our live shows last year. Please welcome Eloise Dundas-Taylor. Hello. Hello, Stuart. Hello, Nat. Thank you for having me. Very happy to have you because I know that you are, like me, another Tragy Bond fan. Absolute Tragic Bond fan. Fantastic. (laughs) It's less common to be a female Tragic Bond fan. I wouldn't say rare. I'd just say when you messaged me, I think, years ago, saying, I'm also obsessed with the Bond films. I was like, cool, that's two of us. Because I don't know many other, well, I don't have many other of my female friends who are super into Bond. So That's true. It's a, it's a fan base that tends to be largely male. I don't even remember when I actually became a fan of James Bond. Like, I've always really loved the idea of this, like, spy espionage thing. When I was young, I only ever wanted to be two things when I grew up. Either, one, an actor, or B, an international spy. Neither have panned out so far. <laughs> Eloise is an accomplished actor around Brisbane, but um, (laughs) well, you've got young kids, so that's probably less (laughs) less time uh, for acting. Less time for acting. I mean, well, it's less time for acting right now at the moment anyway, so I suppose. True. Speaking as a quasi-semi-producer, yes, there is none. Yeah, so we're very happy uh, Eloise requested to come on for Moonraker. Can you tell us, give us your, you know, pitch as to why this was the film you yeah. wanted? Yeah, why, why this one, Eloise? Uh, well, funnily enough, it's the second James Bond film I've ever seen. So the first James Bond film I saw was Goldeneye, which I should have to say is probably my number one Bond film. It's a good one to start with. It yeah. really was. And then because I got into James Bond because of that particular film, my dad was like, okay, I'll start getting you the James Bond film. Start with Moonraker. It's the best one. He goes to space. And I went, sure. I mean, you can't argue with that logic. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, I have to say, re-watching it for the first time in a long time, because I watched it a couple of weeks ago, I suddenly realised how absolutely bonkers this film really is. <laughs> like, bananas to the walls bonkers. Is that a saying? It Start is now. Saying it. it is now. <laughs> bananas to the walls bonkers. <laughs> just everything happens in this film. But it's just, it's loads of fun because of how silly it is. I just really, really enjoy it. It just brings a smile to my face every time I watch it because of the ridiculous scenarios within it. (laughs) I have to agree. I have a really soft spot for this film, a real fondness for it. It is ridiculous and over the top. It still kind of works. As far as going, let's do a James Bond in space film, 
this kind of maintains an element of what Stu and I have really been calling the Roger Moore superhero bond. I think it's one of those things where you watch all of these Bond films and he is like a natural at everything he puts his hand to, like anything that he does, like skiing or shooting targets or playing Baccarat. He's always like flying a space shuttle. He's the best of the best. So of course, of course he's the best at being an astronaut sure exactly <laughs> without actually, any training whatsoever i love i actually love that that's a great explanation i, I love that so much if i can just be a pedant because you know it's me i do want to point out that when they go into space on moonraker 6 it is on an automatic flight pattern so nobody's flying and then when they come back into the earth's orbit and they're destroying the globes at the end of the film it's dr holly goodhead who's flying and bond is merely firing the uh, laser absolutely natalie you convinced me this movie is 100 percent realistic <laughs> could totally happen <laughs> i just want to strike a point for women in this film <laughs> taking names because the film certainly doesn't uh, well, <laughs> Speaking of Holly Goodhead, can I admit that I was like today years old when I actually got that pun? Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Like rewatching it, I was just like, oh, Oh, I was way too young when I first saw this film. (laughs) It's obscene, but it's also as a kid, you just don't get it. I think when I first saw it, it went way over my head. And then I think I later read, uh, you know, when GoldenEye was coming out and there was a lot more interest back in the Bond franchise and I would buy the magazines in the shops and clip out all the pictures and that sort of thing. And I remember they had like a list of the best Bond girl names and she was right up there. And I was like, but I don't understand. Why is that a, like a sexy thing? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's quite as on the nose as Pussy Galore, but... <laughs> She's still pretty cool. So I've got a lot of time for uh, Holly Goodhead as a kick-ass CIA agent and NASA scientist. I mean, one of my favourite lines in the film, or certainly the delivery, is when Roger Moore meets her, because they just say at Drax Industries, oh, you're going to meet Dr. Goodhead. Mm. They don't mention gender. And then he turns at a corner and says, I'm looking for Dr. Goodhead. And she says, you just found her. And then he has this, like, wry smile, raises an (laughs) eyebrow and goes, a woman. (laughs) Oh, we're doing women in the industry now, are we? (laughs) It's just delivered so pitch perfectly to the point where, you want to smack him, but also it's hilarious. Like <laughs> That's the Roger Moore brilliance. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's more funny now in this day and age. We can kind of laugh at it. <laughs> Where it was probably quite outrageous back in the 70s. <laughs> I had a real revelation actually watching this movie um, was that I, I also really liked it. I, I watched it when I was a kid and I loved it because of all the space stuff and Jaws, obviously, and all that stuff. You know, it was, it was just completely crazy spy adventure. I loved it. And then I watched it as part of this rewatch that we're doing. And I realized they just made The Spy Who Loved Me again, but substituted space for sea. Yes. Like, that's literally what it is. I had no, like, watching them in context, uh, like we're doing one after another, I'm finally putting together all 
all these little things and they just made the same movie twice. I was actually thinking about the same thing this morning when I was listening to the Spy Who Loved Me's podcast that you did. Yeah, I was kind of thinking to myself, hang on, so they've gone into the ocean and now they've gone into space. So they've gone two different uncharted territories there in a row. Yeah, but I mean, even down to like the story beats. So I mean, Drax, he wants to destroy the world and start another one in his own image in a different uh, scenario. (laughs) Even they have the same style of Bond girl who's like from a rival operation who they have to team up up and work together mm. you know and even right right down to the fact that the secret base like he's got he's got the moonraker base we've got the atlantis like everything about this movie even down to and what i really love is that the space battles in this movie are just like underwater battles they're, they're exactly the same <laughs> as the ones from previous films filmed underwater except they're all in they're all in space this time <laughs> Well, I have been doing some reading up and I watched the behind the scenes making of documentary on my DVD. It's really interesting. So I think one of the reasons why they did that is because The Spy Who Loved Me had done so well Mm. that they went, why mess with a winning formula? Let's not do For Your Eyes Only. Just immediately remake our movie. Let's remake our movie. So uh, have either of you read the book Moonraker? No, I I haven't. I actually did read all of the James Bond books a long time ago, and I honestly don't really remember the storyline in Moonraker, (laughs) (laughs) the novel version. I I kind of recall the very first few, and then my memory peters out. (laughs) Well, I have read Moonraker, and I remember it because a lot of the plot of Moonraker, the novel, turns up later in Die Another Day. So at the time, and this is actually like footage that they have of Cubby Broccoli from the time talking about why they're doing Moonraker and why they changed the plot's novel is because it wasn't big enough. And if you think about it in context, they're trying to compete with Star Wars. Mm. So the original plot They failed, of but... Yeah. Oh, come on, Stu. <laughs> I won't have that talk here. <laughs> This is a Bond podcast, not a That's Star Wars podcast. That's true, not a Star Wars podcast. At the moment, anyway. We, we've done Star Wars podcasts in the past. Have we? <laughs> yeah, we did a whole we did a whole one about uh, Rise of Skywalker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that great, was it? Remember that? A thousand years ago <laughs> when the world wasn't shut down? Oh, God. <laughs> in person with Dan. We all sat in the same room. Yeah, we, we were all together, like within one and a half metres of each other. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, there was no social distancing then. Very novel idea, that, you know, being in the <laughs> same room. <laughs> yeah, so the, Hugo Drax is the villain of Moonraker, the novel, and he builds a large rocket. That's definitely the same. But the whole point is that he's supposed to be a wealthy industrialist who was a British soldier during the war. But it turns out he wants to arm this rocket with a nuclear missile head. A good head. <laughs> Indeed. And aim it straight towards London. So that kind of concept of targeted revenge from the sky turns up in Die Another Day with the character of Gustav Graves. But we'll get to that later when we we get to Die Another Day. Although there's also, quick sidebar, the fight that happens in this scene between Bond and Drax's assistant Chang, his first henchman, who's the Aikido expert. Yes. And they yes. have this fight in the glass factory and there's oh, shells yes. going everywhere. And <laughs> So two things about that. That is still, I think, that holds the record for the most sugar glass made and destroyed. <laughs> oh. Well, I do love that they set it up. They telegraph it so much. Like they're walking <laughs> through the glass, oh. like 
display <laughs> area going, yes, and this one's worth a lot of money. <laughs> I think so, of oh. that scene as Chekhov's bowl. You can't have <laughs> a bowl that's described as being the one and only in the world and it's priceless and not have it completely smashed in a ridiculous way in the second act. <laughs> But it's also that scene very much um, inspired or, or paid homage to in Madonna's film clip for Die Another Day, which, of course, the whole point of Die Another Day was it was the 20th Bond film. So it had lots of Easter eggs and tributes and cameo appearances. It had a one tribute per previous Bond film or something, didn't it? Yeah, little Easter eggs, little things popped up, particularly in, in Pierce Brosnan's scene with Q, who was by then John Cleese. Yes. But in Madonna's film clip, she fights her ego. So like the white-clad Madonna and the black-clad Madonna fight in a glass factory display shop and smash up a bunch of stuff. So I was watching that scene going, oh, that's right. That's Madonna's inspiration for the Die Another Day film clip. Sidebar over. Uh, I'll get back to the plot. But yes, so the, <laughs> so the plot of the novel has more in common with Die Another Day than it does have with Moonraker because, as Cubby Broccoli said, they wanted to go bigger. They wanted to get James Bond in space. And it wasn't enough that Drax builds a rocket. Anyone can build a rocket and threaten to blow up London, mm. whatever. They're trying to compete now with Star Wars and space. So they had to go really big. And by the time they worked out, uh, they knew they wanted to film in Rio de Janeiro because Broccoli had gone there on a holiday and thought, this will be great. So he sent a crew <laughs> out a year ahead of the rest of filming to go film Mardi Gras. Right, okay. Yeah. So they've got all that, that stock footage of Mardi Gras. Yeah, basically. They knew that they would do something with Mardi Gras, so they sent out the crew to film it, and then they worked out the bits to go around it that they then, you know, recreated on studio sets and that sort of thing. The other interesting thing about this film is I think it was the most expensive to date. It was something like, for its time, $38, $40 million budget. Right. Well, they did have to move Versailles to California after all. So. <laughs> interesting enough that you bring that up. There were some tax changes happening at the time, which made it more expensive to film in Britain. So they did a deal with France and they moved virtually the whole production to France. All of the main sets were done at two studios in Paris and they basically kicked out all other French films to make this Bond movie. The only thing shot at Pinewood in the UK was all the special effects with the lasers and the, you know, the space stuff. That was all done in England. But Wait, you mean they didn't actually go to space? Ah, oh, I'm shocked. shocked. <laughs> <laughs> Disappointed. <laughs> and then they did all the location shots in Rio de Janeiro. They did a section in Guatemala. They filmed like the Mayan temples and stuff that form Drax's headquarters. And they filmed at the Igusu Falls, the big waterfalls. I have a great story about that too. I'll get to that later. So it was the most expansive Bond film to date. And Broccoli sort of got the budget in when everyone came back with their, well, this is going to cost this and this is going to cost this. And he went, okay, yep, cool. Because I think he probably knew that coming off the back of Spy Who Loved Me, they'd make that money back and then some, you know, because mm. they were on a good roll at the time. And it did. It did super well at the box office. I think it was like $230 million box office, which was the best adjusted for inflation, the best Bond box office until GoldenEye. I was about to ask how well the film did, actually, considering yep. on second viewing, it's just what the hell is going on in this film? <laughs> but come on, there's so many good elements. Sure. There are. <laughs> and he's back from the start. 
I love his reintroduction back at the start because it's like, how long has he been cramped in that on-plane toilet for until <laughs> I'm just going to wait for my moment to come out and reveal myself? Ah, my neck. It's <laughs> well, I did want to update Stu on something we were talking about last week is why did they let Jaws survive, the spy who loved me? Yes, yeah, and yeah. it very much was a case of they didn't quite know when they did it, so they filmed two endings. One was him getting killed by the shark and then one was the shot of him swimming off to safety because they didn't quite know what they wanted to do with him. Right, okay. They were able to decide in the editing process that, oh, no, he survives. So I do have other things to talk about Jaws. But essentially, I think we mentioned the plot of this is Drax is a crazy industrialist who wants to destroy the world of humans, keep the plant life, keep the animals, but then take a Noah's Ark of beautiful, perfect specimens from every race on the planet, and then they'll all go up into space and breed and then return to Earth as gods to repopulate a better world. As you do. Uh, Sure, sure. (laughs) Perfectly sane, normal plan. (laughs) Don't, Don't think too much about it and don't think too much about how the hell did he build a space base? Yes, I know. Yeah, exactly. Secretly. (laughs) There's a line in there about a radar jammer or something. Yes. Sure. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many things in this movie where I'm just like, like, it just feels, it feels mean spirited to poke holes in it. It's just (laughs) sort of like, sure. Okay, man, whatever. Well, one of my favourite aspects is the um, the fact that when Bond and, and, and Holly Goodhead stop the radar jam, or they jam the radar jammer so they can be seen again, Bond's like, if we unjam it, we'll be seen and they'll send for help. Like, th- this is implying that all of a sudden the US has a space force. I was about to say, space yeah. force. <laughs> They literally already have Space Force, which is capable of deploying a platoon of soldiers, astronaut soldiers. All with jetpacks. All with jetpacks and lasers. Well, those laser rifles that Q was developing, apparently, like (laughs) earlier on in the film. It's just like, oh, he developed them just in time, I guess, for this (laughs) army of people. Do you think that Donald Trump, the the day he came up with Space Force, had been watching Moonraker on the weekend? (laughs) And he went, I've got this brilliant idea. (laughs) I wonder what Donald Trump thinks of Bond movies. He would have think he was Bond, wouldn't he? Oh, he would probably think he's Bond. (laughs) Oh, oh, get away from my franchise, Trump. It's my franchise. Can't have it. One of those things where you realise something you really love is also loved by someone you really hate. It's like, you know, finding out George Christensen is a really big Doctor Who fan. I'm like, ugh, Yeah, that, that's, always a, that's always a downer. <laughs> so, with that, should we start our one-minute challenge? Yes, absolutely. Would you like to go first, Stu, or do you want me to go first? Look, I've, I've gone first a lot recently. Do you want to go first this time? Okay, I'll go first. You've convinced me. Uh, <laughs> My first entry onto my minute challenge list was space. Yes, that's where the last 20 minutes of the film is set. (laughs) Bond in space, Marines in space, (laughs) hot people in space, (laughs) Jaws in space. (laughs) Then I put the wacky villain uh, with his crazy plan, Drax. I've put in waterfalls for the Uneasy Falls. <laughs> I've put in rockets and Ken Adams' design. I think whatever your thoughts on the film as a whole, the production design and the special effects are phenomenal. Oh, it's, it's for amazing. Time. Yeah. For, it, and yeah, for its time. Ken Adams, like he, he has two big kind of layers for Drax. He has, the yeah. fir- he has the first layer that Bond walks in where he eventually has his anaconda fight. Oh, I didn't write down anaconda. <laughs> 
It's a python anyway. But um, he has that one, which he designed to look fake. That's the thing. If people say that, oh, that's such a fake-looking set, it's designed to look like that. It's designed to look like glass. Ken Adam designed it like that, so it's this, like, pristine, glassy image of what Drax thought his lair should look like, which I thought was really oh, Yeah. Okay. It's not just cheap. It's actually really expensive. <laughs> it's cheap and inventive. <laughs> There's also, I put in there, the Magnificent Seven and Q's Workshop and the MI6 base in Brazil, I think. Yeah, it's another element that actually gets ported across from The Spy Who Loved Me, because in The Spy Who Loved Me, we get the sting from Lawrence of Arabia. And so in this film, they're just like, ah, he's got to ride on a horse for a while, I guess. So we'll put the Magnificent Seven theme in there, and somehow he gets a poncho and a cowboy hat. (laughs) Like... What's going on? Random bits of people training, like, you know, two monks. Oh, yeah. Throwing each other across a room. (laughs) And then the monk who wins that battle just crosses himself. Yeah. 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 Which makes me think, are they actually monks who are also trained fighters? (laughs) Or are they keeping up an appearance? I don't know. Well, they go I have so to, many questions. They go to, because that, that location is a real life, it's actually in Venice. They shot those scenes in Venice. But uh, I love the, the contradiction of, you know, Bond rocks up. It's supposed to be South America, but it was shot in Venice. So Bond rocks up in his poncho. There's all these monks having fights and whatnot, and a few other people dressed more like South American farmers, horse riders, whatever you would call them. And then all of a sudden one of the monks has a space laser. <laughs> <laughs> melting a mannequin. It's <laughs> just like so incongruous, but great. Um, that leads into my next point, though, which is space jokes. And I think what I meant by that is like space movie jokes. So not only do you have the Magnificent Seven, which is more the Western joke, you have when Drax is hunting at his French estate, which is in mm. California because he rebuilt it brick by brick, the guy on the bugle to signify the start of the hunt or something blows the first three notes of Thus spake Zarathustra. Oh, yes, he does too. That's right. It's from Space Odyssey. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Ah, I don't know figure out what that was. So that's the first three notes of that. And then, of course, when Bond is in Venice breaking into the dress. <laughs> There's the, there's the door lock. Yes. There's the door lock. Now, Cubby Broccoli went to Steven Spielberg and specifically asked for permission to use that sound as a favour, saying, hey, do you mind if we, I'd love to use it, you know, love love close encounters of the third kind. Could I please use your signature alien communication tune hmm. and put it in the Bond film? Steven Spielberg said yes. And then years later, when Spielberg was directing The Goonies, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. he asked Cubby Broccoli to use the James Bond theme in the Goonies to return the favour. Ah, oh, so, that explains <laughs> that then. <laughs> awesome. So I thought that was a very cute little anecdote. I also had uh, Holly Goodhead, which we mentioned, Venice and the the speed gondola. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the gondola car. The with, gondola hovercraft. The gondola hovercraft, which the pigeon that does a double take. Oh, the pigeon double take. <laughs> However, that bit bit of the sound goes. And also, if you remember last week's due, when I mentioned that as Bond and Anya are driving out of the water in the Lotus Esprit, there's a guy on the beach who looks at his water bottle, his wine bottle, and then looks back at the car, and he's there in Venice in St Mark's Square, looking at his wine bottle again. (laughs) 
they bring that joke back. That's fantastic. Uh, he was a production assistant or someone on the on the film, like he was a crew member that they got to do that joke. <laughs> I wrote down Jaws becomes a goodie. Yes, he does it for love. James Bond isn't the only one with a magic penis in this film. (laughs) Because, come on. I mean, the logistics... Well, funnily enough, whoever originally thought of that idea, apparently Cubby Broccoli or someone didn't buy it initially. They went, no, that could never work. Like, you know, she's really tiny. That wouldn't be believable. And then Richard Keel, who played Jaws, went, oh, she's the same height as my wife. (laughs) (laughs) So they went, okay, fair enough. Obviously, it, it can happen. Mm-hmm. I wrote down the cable car fight off Sugarloaf Mountain in Rio de yes. Janeiro, yeah. which is really, really cool. And I've got a, I've got a great stuntman story about that. Well, I'll tell you now because you, you're going to love this. Because they didn't use Richard Keel and Roger Moore, obviously, they used two stuntmen. They used a normal-sized guy to play Jaws, and then they needed a, like a really short stuntman right. to play Bond, so the height discrepancies would so be maintained. Yeah, yeah. So the guy who played Bond had this moment where he was told by the director, oh, are you, are you set up to fall off the side and grab the handle and kind of hold on? And he was like, oh, I don't want to seem like a pain. So, okay, yes, I'm fine. I'm fine. He wasn't fine. He had his <laughs> harness on, but he wasn't actually connected to the car. So <laughs> he did it because he didn't want to hold up production. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> because they were the, the production schedule had said that that stunt would happen later in the day. So he wasn't ready with the cable yet. But because the director went, oh, can we do it now? He went, okay, sure. Threw himself off this thing and is scrambling to get back. And Lewis Gilbert in the making of talks about how he was going, wow, that looks incredible. And then his assistant kind of prodded him going, you might want to call cut. Yeah. <laughs> cut, cut, we've got enough. So that guy's name is Richard Grayson. Dick Grayson. Oh, his name is Dick Grayson. <laughs> That's brilliant. Wow. And it comes back to Batman. <laughs> Which I made a note of because I was like, I have to tell Stu that the stuntman's name was Dick Grayson. <laughs> Fantastic. That's so cool. And these movies are so, like, fly by the seat of their pants in terms of, like, stunts. Like, I'm surprised more people haven't been horrifically maimed or killed. One stuntman lost a foot so far. I mean, I'm not sure I'm not sure if there's any other horrific stunt uh, stories out of this particular series, but Jesus. Not that I've seen, but I will tell you the final note on my list was the parachute jump. So this is the opening stunt with yes. and being pushed out of a plane by Jaws um, after, you know, the pilot and the flight attendant messing Bond mm. over. I was about to say screwing him over, but she didn't quite get to the screwing. She didn't quite get to that part. Yeah. (laughs) Once again, it's just like random people who, like a woman seducing Bond or Bond seducing the woman, and then middle of making out, I'm going to pull a gun on you because now we're going to double cross you in midair. It's like, why don't you just shoot him? I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Or or drug his drink and throw him out the... Yeah. But let's do this elaborate thing where we leave you on the plane with no parachute as we jump out. And catch the plane. Yeah. (laughs) But what I wanted to talk about was the fact that that stunt jump To do that was one of the most, possibly the most involved stunt that they had done to that point. To the point where the production team told that stunt crew, look, go off and film it way ahead of the rest of production because that way if it doesn't work, we have time to figure something else out. Yes. Um, Okay, right. So they went off to do all the filming. Now, the key issue was the camera that they used because all the Panavision widescreen cameras were glass and very, very heavy. Sure. And in this 
making of Michael G. Wilson, who at this point, and again, just a sidebar about Michael G. Wilson. So he is Cubby Broccoli's stepson. Okay. From, I think, Broccoli married. I can't quite work it out, but Broccoli had a second marriage, I think, and then had Barbara Broccoli, his daughter, who now co-produces all the Bond films or executive producers with Michael G. Wilson, who is their half-brother. So he had started working on with Eon Productions in the 60s as a young man and then was in the legal team and then slowly, I think on The Spy Who Loved Me, got more involved in the production side and then is credited in Moonraker for the first time as a producer. And from here on in, he is always a producer, executive producer. Right, okay. He claims that he was in a store in Paris somewhere in a camera shop and found a Panavision lens that was plastic. And it turned out to be this rare lens that they'd created as an experiment and they weren't really very popular, so they just had a few floating around, but they thought, hmm, this might work because the issue was he had to wear the camera on his head because you're flying. Sure. To capture the footage, you have to be, you're horizontal, you have to have the camera on your head. Now, the issue with the really big, heavy glass lens is that once the cameraman detonates his own, detonates? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's the right word. What do you like? Deploys. Deploys, thank you. Deploys his parachute. It snaps you up. So the Ah. the concern was that if this guy's got this big weight attached to his head and he gets snapped back by the parachute, it's going to snap his neck because it's so heavy. So this plastic lens allowed them to shoot and not endanger the cameraman's life. Now, then they had to get parachutes concealed under the clothes. So when the guy who was stuntman for Bond is just wearing a jacket and you think he's free-falling, but he's actually got a parachute thin enough it's like an inch thick under the jacket, so the jacket right, kind okay. of is Velcro. <laughs> Admittedly, you can you can see it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're being you can tell not charitable at all. You're like, yeah, he's no. definitely wearing a parachute. <laughs> <laughs> Quick sidebar myself, because we were watching it with my son, because I'd been telling him about James Bond, and he's very interested in wanting to know about James Bond. So we thought, okay, well, you can watch Moonraker, because I don't think Moonraker is, like, too bad in terms of appropriateness for a five-year-old. I don't know. I'm a terrible parent. So we were watching the the opening sequence and he was saying, are they really falling? And and we're explaining, no, 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 they've actually got parachutes on underneath their clothes. Look, you can see the outline. He's like, oh, he stole his parachute. And yeah, he thought it was really funny and everything. (laughs) And then Jaws falling into the circus. It was just like, that's ridiculous. I'm like, yes, it is, Aiden. Very well. Well done. (laughs) Well, definitely Jaws is played more for comedy in this film, which I'm I'm sure we'll talk about. But just to close off the parachute, all they wanted each jump was like a three-second cut. So they did 88 jumps. Holy crap. Christ. To get that footage. Is that another world record? (laughs) Uh, I think, (laughs) look, it's probably up there. The, The cinematographer, whoever was, you know, designing the shots, they would get to the ground after a jump They'd put the film in, they'd look at what they got, and they went, okay, yep, that works, that works. And next jump, we'll do this scene. So if you can get them wrestling this way or get them going here, and they would then have to work out how to do it, get that, go back up again. Took 88 jumps to get that scene. But I think worth it because I love that. One of my favorite. No, it's a great scene. When Bond, he's free-falling, and then you see him, like, stretch his arms back and put his head down. Yeah, yeah, and and to to catch up. Yeah, How was I to catch up? It's just so superhero cool. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again. And it's been copied so many times since then. Like, I feel like that this sequence has definitely been 
uh, borrowed but in several other films. I would not doubt that. I'm trying to think of one, but... The one that immediately sprang to mind was uh, in Iron Man 3, where he has the scene where he has to catch everyone, that they all get blown out of the plane and he has to catch everyone who aren't wearing parachutes. Ah, uh, oh, yes, and he's picking them up out of the air and they're all yeah, joining hands. Exactly, yeah, yeah. That feels very of a piece. <laughs> and again, with Bond jumping out, like, without the parachute and then having to wrestle the parachute off of someone, it again leads into he's the best of the best of doing all of these things. Like, how do you train for something like that? It's like, all right, today, class, we're going to learn how to jump out of a plane without a parachute and steal the parachute of the person that we're attacking in midair, putting it off the deploy so you don't die. Like, You know, it's funny, Eloise, because a couple of weeks ago when we had Dan Beeston on, he asked me the question, you know, why do I love Bond so much? And I rambled on, as I do, about various reasons. But then just watching this film, it kind of crystallised a bit more for me. And I think it relates to what you're saying, which is I just love Bond's confidence, his utter <laughs> knowledge that he's perfectly good at doing something. Because I think, you know, for me going through the world trying to do <laughs> things and new things, I'm like, I can't do this. How am I supposed to do this? I don't know how to produce a show. I don't know how to write this. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to make a podcast. I don't know how to write a thing. And that's just, you know, creative stuff. Then there's things like, I don't know how to wash clothes. I don't know how to. <laughs> I went to dinner with friends the other night and went to get them a bottle of wine. And every time I walk into a liquor store or bottle O, as we call them in Australia, I go, yeah, I've got this. And I walk around <laughs> looking at wine. <laughs> and after about 10 minutes, I go, yeah, I don't got this. <laughs> and go to the nice person at the counter and say, hi there, could you recommend a red? <laughs> I've got no idea what I'm doing. But um, Bond just knows. And whether that's the result of training or intensive study or whether that's just the result of him being like, well, of course I know. I'm James Bond. There's something really <laughs> special and attractive about that utter confidence. I've suddenly got a mind of a sketch, perhaps, of like Bond coming home after a day of working and absolutely having no clue how to keep house. Like there's just piles <laughs> of dishes everywhere. Has to try to order takeout. He doesn't know the number. He's, he's trying to do the washing and he can't figure out the buttons on the washing machine. He's trying to reheat some pizza in the microwave and it blows up. He's trying to talk to his home Google service. Google, turn on television. I'm sorry, I can't help you with that right now. <laughs> I think we need to film the sketch. It's a good sketch. So that is my list as it stands at the moment. So over to you, Stu, with your challenge list. Yeah, so I started off my list with spies in space. <laughs> <laughs> this is obviously the space movie that has about 20 minutes of space in it, uh, and it goes for like over two hours. Uh, so it, <laughs> it doesn't you? deliver exactly what it says on the tin, but uh, there's a lot of very fun, goofy space action in this one, so it's very cool. I also wrote, Jaws is back. Yay. Uh, I don't think we see him again, do we? So, I mean, he, no. he presumably splashed down. That they, they have a line of dialogue where they're just like, yeah, he's fine. They, they're was, fine. I forgot that he survives. Because it doesn't seem likely. <laughs> it really doesn't. They're sort of in, I guess, the main section of the space. Yeah, and it, it's drifting back towards Earth and Bond sort of goes, they'll be fine. And then they'll there's a line fine. of dialogue later saying, they're fine. It would have been nice to have, like, at least one more, like, shot of them, I don't know, holding hands and skipping off together. <laughs> yeah, some something to give us a bit of closure. Otherwise, I mean, I guess it's a pretty fun way to finish that off where he's, like, he clinks the, the champagne glass and he's, like, here's to us. Like, here's it's, to it's, us. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty great. And he's got such a deep voice. 
Now, is that actually is that actually Richard Keel? I believe so. Or is it? Or is it? Um, has he been dubbed like so many Bond girls before him? I don't know that they dubbed the men. Certainly, they didn't dub uh, Michael Lonsdale as Drax because he's a French actor. This is the thing. Yeah. Because they had to do this co-production, they had to have a number of key French actors. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And just to point out, sorry to derail you as soon as you started, Stu, but Hugo Drax <laughs> in the book, as I said, he's he's this wealthy industrialist who was apparently a British soldier who had amnesia, but you know went back to his normal life and and became very wealthy and successful. And Bond discovers that no, 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 he was a Nazi in charge of a werewolf patrol or one of those sorts of things, <laughs> and he faked his amnesia to avoid punishment. And he's now working with the Soviets to destroy London because he's still angry that Germany lost the war. So I guess the Master Race stuff kind of fits in there. (laughs) It does kind of fit. It fits a lot better. (laughs) There was definitely some Master Race overtones of of Drax's perfect world that he was trying to create. I kind of love Drax. He's so dry and deadpan. What he has up on Stromberg is his fantastic villain speech at the end. Yes, yes, it is great. I was going to say, like, he has that great line of dialogue where Bond escapes from the from the anaconda and he says, Mr. Bond, you keep avoiding my amusing deaths for you. Yes. You know, like... <laughs> and the other one that he has at the end on the spaceship where he says, at least I can put you out of my misery. Yes, that is a pretty good line. So I've been talking about Drax. Uh, the, the note that I had about Drax in my minute challenge list was that uh, he looks like Peter Dinklage's dad. Oh, my God. I can't believe you said that, Stu. I was watching it going, wow, he reminds me of Peter Dinklage. Yeah, like like he just, he looks exactly like Peter Dinklage, right? He does. Yeah, I can totally see that. (laughs) I made notes, mental notes, every time I saw him going, he really reminds me of, like if Peter Dinklage and Richard Nixon were combined in a measure. (laughs) <laughs> there's there something a bit nixony about his hair there is there's a nixony uh, nixony patina to his to his features <laughs> so the way he delivers deadpan lines too mm, yeah like, yeah they're like his demeanor yeah it just has a real Tyrion lannister vibe <laughs> it's very good I, I didn't have too many more uh on the list so i had uh, i had obviously the gondola hovercraft either the best or the worst bond vehicle uh, ever, depending on how you rank it, making that list. <laughs> Gondola so, Hovercraft. What fever dream thought process came up with that idea? One of the writers, Christopher Wood, uh, the main writer, he originally wanted to have motorbikes through Venice because it's got all those bridges. So he had visions of motorbikes going over bridges and motorbikes falling off bridges and into sure. gondolas and all this sort of stuff. They didn't really explain why they went with gondolas, but certainly they tried to buy gondolas off gondoliers, I think is the name for them. And no one wanted to sell because they're very highly prized artifacts, like boats. They're, they're prized possessions. They got four in the end, like old gondolas, like out-of-action ones. What do you call that? Dis- Decommissioned, I guess? or I suppose, yes. So they take <laughs> these old ones and then rig them up with the motors. But, of course, gondolas are not particularly designed for speed. <laughs> no. no. They, they are famously a leisure craft. And when they put the hovercraft on the one that Bond goes upstairs <laughs> into St. Mark's Square. So that's Roger Moore in the gondola. Uh, sure, we, we get a good look at him. So he's driving it. So they gave him the basic controls, but he said there's not much to it. It's essentially like, you know, push forward and the thing should go up. It got halfway and flipped and threw him into the water. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. He's telling this story in the making of, and he says that they couldn't control 
the tourists in the square. They tried to get police to like put everyone back because of course everyone's Venice is a very popular tourist destination. Sure, yeah. And St. Mark's Square is the heart of Venice. It's the it's the spot, yeah. It's the spot. And so <laughs> all these people were going, Oh, there's a movie being filmed. Let's all go over and crowd around and watch it. <laughs> it really <laughs> did like, look like that yeah. <laughs> when you watch it back. Well, yeah, what yeah. the police did was they went, Okay, everybody, two straight lines. So they made everybody line up. In two straight lines. Because that's very, very natural. It's a very natural crowd placement. So in the end, they went, okay, let's just tell the police to back off and everyone just mingle about and we'll get their genuine reactions as a gondola goes through. When we launch this gondola at them. So all of those reactions of people are absolutely people going, what the hell? That's pretty great. But Roger Moore talks about how he flipped or ended up in the water four times. And every time had to go and change suits. And he said, and on the fifth one, it worked, which was good because I'd run out of suits. <laughs> <laughs> he had five identical suits that they'd prepped for him and they all got wet. Surely he can't fall into the water five times. Yeah. So, um, so they got it. And then the bit where he's driving it through the square, he was really terrified because he's sitting there in this, in the film, he just looks really arrogant. But in reality, Roger Moore, that's obviously the look he's got on his face because internally he's going, I'm going to hit someone. I'm going to hit someone. All he can do is got to push the thing to go forward. Like he can't control the direction. And it's this big clunky object. Yeah. He was terrified he was going to kill someone. Oh, God. <laughs> Can you imagine James Bond kills man? I mean, that's not surprising. But uh, I was about to say, that's dog bites man sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was uh, really fun. And then the other Roger Moore suit thing that I thought was really fun. Sorry, Stu, I'll, I'll, I'll stop my sidebar eventually. No, 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 that's all right. Okay. I, I, love talking about Bo- I love talking about Roger Moore's suits because he has arguably the most mixed fashion across his run of any of the Bonds. Yeah, oh, he has that fantastic suit when he when he's hunting with Drax with the elbow patches. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, Bond and elbow patches. I totally Profit forgot tweet. that was a thing. But, yeah, so when he, you know, when they land in Rio de Janeiro and they land on a Concorde. Sure. So they actually got the deal with Air France to, to fly because Air France actually flew to Rio. It was only five hours on a Concorde. Yeah, the Concorde was insane. What they did was... They filmed Roger Moore's Concorde landing. Like, that's literally, he's on that plane. Oh, right. Roger Moore. And he gets out of the plane. He's met by the crew. They take him off to a change room. He gets made up, his hair done, new suit, goes back on the plane, and they film him walking off the Concorde as Bond. Wow. (laughs) Like, literally, that was straight away. That's how they did it. I thought that was genius. That's fantastic. Don't waste anything. Get it all done while you're out there. (laughs) You wouldn't be able to do that these days. <laughs> no. Well, Concords don't fly, sadly, anymore. Wow. It was a bit of a bad Concord accident and they shuttered them all. <laughs> Sorry, Stu, I'll let you continue until I think of the next No, no, that's all right. Well, I mean, so so the next item on my list is the infamous uh, pigeon double take, <laughs> uh, which, depending on who you talk to, is possibly the lowest point of the Bond series as a whole. <laughs> Um, like, I understand why it's there, like, like, in context and watching the film, but it's still like, Jesus, man, who thought that was a good idea? Come on. <laughs> I can't 
really find anything, well, in my brief initial research of why that's left in there, but it's it's very much like the slide whistle from Man with the Golden Gun. I was yeah, about to it's, say. It's, a, it's more egregious than the slide whistle because the slide whistle, you can see why they did that. Like, But in the context of the scene, I almost understand it because you're getting reaction after reaction after reaction. You get multiple crowd, like individuals in the crowd that they single in on, including that guy who kind of looks at his wine bottle again. So they're getting reaction, 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 and then they cut to a bird who's also <laughs> doing a double take. And I kind of get it. If you're being super charitable, like you kind of get that comedy progression, but it still just is like, okay, so a pigeon just did a double take. Like, I know this is the goofy one, but like, even so, that's pretty weird. I love how they had to reverse the film to make yeah. it look Yeah, like it looks really funky too. They've had to like, re- re- like a real record scratch. It's, it's it nuts. so funky. <laughs> Again, I don't hate it. Like it's I'm, no, I I, I, yeah, I definitely don't hate. It. I actually, I actually dislike the slide whistle more. I reckon that that really detracts from what is actually a very impressive stunt. Yes. Whereas this is obviously a comedy moment. <laughs> a hover gondola is not an impressive stunt. It's, it's not an impressive it's, stunt. What the hell is it's, going it's on? <laughs> it's deliberately goofy, and they just took it over the top. I think what I love most about the hover gondola is he's supposed to be a secret agent. Yeah. I know. <laughs> That whole secret agent thing just goes right out the window at this point. Sure. Again, as we've been saying, Bond is the worst spy. He's, he's a terrible spy. Which is ironic, considering he's so good at everything. <laughs> <laughs> terrible at being a spy. Good at everything, but the one thing he's supposed to be good at. <laughs> That's nearly the end of my list. The only other thing that I had, I had, um, we talked about it a little bit before, but I just had space battles equals underwater battles, which I, I had forgotten about the jetpack fight in open space. And that I cackled like a maniac when the the shut the American shuttle opened and just a, a crew of Marines in jetpacks came streaming out. I'm like, oh, this is bananas. I love this. This is fantastic. But it, it literally is the underwater fights. Like they just they just restage their underwater fights, but in space. It's amazing. There's a lot of dead people floating around in space now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lots of lots of corpses. Lots of corpses in those incredibly fashionable shiny yellow jumpsuits because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> i'm assuming that all of the young attractive people died didn't they was is that implied that they I all mean, died yeah. <laughs> you would think so assuming they didn't get back to earth and like i don't feel too bad about it because they're all really weirdly hostile anyway when they're all just standing around gleefully watching bond be drowned by the python it's just <laughs> disturbingly smirking at the yes yes drown drown (laughs) maybe you're not the best of people (laughs) it is really funny that they again and i know austin powers parodies this beautifully but the uniforms that they have to go into space like the women (laughs) are wearing the skimpiest skirts like no bras and yeah i just i love the fact that to go into space everyone else is in jumpsuits and helmets and stuff and they're just in all, all the women are in yeah little little mini skirts and things and also like so he doesn't i mean just to talk about drax's plan very briefly i mean surely he'd want them to like become pregnant i, I suppose that could be dangerous if you're taking pregnant people into space that could be very dangerous so you sure. want to get up there and then start breeding but like that's that's not a guarantee, is it? Like you can't. How do you? I suppose he's probably had them all tested, but it's very culty. It's the most culty Bond villain. <laughs> it's so, it's extremely culty. How Drax managed to get all these people to follow him? So there's an actual cult in a later James Bond film, isn't in the <laughs> Timothy Dalton film where with the cult with the with the uh, the guy who's like trying to get everyone to give him money. And even that's less culty than this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, that's- 
that's the uh, evangelical uh, preacher ah, guy, the sort of the, the Jim Backer style, like, hey, if you need your sins cleansed, send me money because that's how God works. Um, <laughs> that's still a cult. <laughs> yes, uh, slightly less fanciful uniforms. Although I did see in the cast list at the end of the film one of the girls who's just called Blonde Beauty, who I assume is the woman from the glass shop who then turns up at the Mayan, you know, waterfalls and Bond kind of follows her in like the Pied Piper of Hamlin and a rat. I thought uh, that was the same person. Yeah, the, the big curly blonde hair. I think that's her. She's just credited as Blonde Beauty. But her name was like Ivana Bochenko, Bohenko. Like, so my name is Bohensky, which is Polish. Oh, but Okay. The Ukrainian version is Bochenko, or I don't know if they pronounce the C or not, maybe it's Bohenko, but um, yeah, like ski is the Polish surname suffix, I guess. Sure, quite in famously. Ukraine, in Ukraine, it's ko, K-O, so that's why you get like Yushinkos and Grishenkos and stuff, that's Ukrainian. Yeah, anyway, I just thought I'd point that out because that's a similar root name to my name. So, sure, so, so you're saying this is a distant relative? A very distant Ukrainian relative, <laughs> which is possible because apparently my grandfather's family did sort of connect to come from a part of Poland that was, you know, close-ish to Ukraine. That's very cool. So just pointing it out there. If anyone is on Ancestry.com and wants to do some research for me, because I can't, what I'm trying to do is draw a connection between me and an incredibly hot blonde woman. That's what I'm trying sure. to do. <laughs> so if everyone can just, when they're watching Moonraker and they see the incredibly hot blonde woman and go, ah, that's what Natalie must look like. So just so you, more... you and James Bond have that in common, trying to draw a connection between an incredibly hot blonde woman. <laughs> I do love the fact that when he turns up in that lair and he's standing on a rock that, like, tips up and tips him into the... Yes. <laughs> I feel like that was because in... Isn't there in a previous film where the bridge collapses and he's gone, ah, I I know this one, ha-ha, I'm not going to go on that bridge, and oh, no, a rock, ah! That's a really <laughs> good point because it does have the bridge, like the no-banister bridge. Yeah. That's a very good theory. I like that. That's probably true. If not for Bond, then the audience will be like, don't go across the bridge. It'll be like piranhas from You Only Live Twice. Because, by God, we've copied so much of that film in now the second film. Yes, that's right. <laughs> in Spy and... This is a um, copy of a copy at this point. Yes, yeah, sorry, Stu. Back to you. No, that's right. I had um the, the only other thing that I had on my list, and I think it's an interesting thing to note, is that as wacky and goofy and, and kind of fun like as, as this movie is, a lot of the main actors seem pretty bored. <laughs> Everyone seems a little bit checked out in this. Like Roger Moore is doing his Roger Moore, and that's fine. Like, like he seems he seems pretty locked in. But um, Holly Goodhead is not present for a lot of the movie. I've I feel. noticed that she's very much just yeah. She really seems like she phones it in quite. Yeah, a lot. And the part that really nailed it home was in the final sequence where they're flying the uh, shuttle to catch the final Moonraker satellite and Bond's having trouble getting the targeting system working and all this sort of thing. He has to take it a manual. He's like, hold her steady, hold her steady. She's sitting there going, the hull's burning up. Uh, we're we're going to have, we can't keep this up. No. Oh, no. Not like, a lot of sense of urgency so going are on. You, are you suggesting to me, Stu, that being a woman, she should be more emotional? <laughs> no, I'm suggesting being in a spaceship that's flying apart as a human being, she should maybe show a little a little bit more uh, situational appropriate uh, responses. I'm sorry. What I'm hearing is that <laughs> here we see 
see a capable, intelligent scientist responding <laughs> with a cool and calm under pressure manner, and all of a sudden, oh no, it's not realistic. <laughs> if it's any consolation, I also think she is phoning it in throughout the rest of her performance as well. So, <laughs> well, I think she's just got a, a very cool demeanor. I just I think, think she is not very good. But anyway. <laughs> Wow, laying it out there, Stu, on the line. <laughs> Look, she's no Anya Amasova, I will give you that. No, Amasova, Amasova. not by any stretch of the imagination. But I still like her. I still think she's she's got some really good put-downs of Bond, particularly when they first meet. And he's like, a woman. She's like, oh, your powers of observation, do you credit? Like this very dry... That's true. You're a fuckboy, mate. I can tell you from 10 yards. <laughs> like, I can appreciate it at the beginning because oh, that's the situation that they're in. But then to still not have any emotion when they're, you know, <laughs> they're re-entering the Earth's atmosphere and everything is flying apart. I'm sorry, mate, different. she's not trying to panic Bond. She has a very serious <laughs> job of firing, you know... <laughs> She's just maintaining a level head. She's like, ah, just letting you know, the wings are about to fall off. So <laughs> just keep that in mind. It <laughs> always reminds me of that scene in Top Gun where they're successful at the end, but Charlie Sheen is just radioing back all the damage to his plane. <laughs> and eventually he's like, left wing's gone, and there goes the right wing. He's like coming in for a landing, and he just lands, boom, on the deck. <laughs> <laughs> Admittedly, I've actually not seen that film all the way through. I only know, like, Hot Shots. Oh, hang on, what are we talking about? That was Hot Shots. Uh, oh, my you, God. You said, my... you said Top Gun. Oh, shoot. I was like, I meant... I'm pretty sure Hot she means Hot Shots. That's what, yeah, no wonder I got confused. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. My bad. No, it's a, it, Top Gun is a very distinct movie. Yep. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Thank goodness. I thought my brain broke for a second. <laughs> You save me here. I'm floundering. No, that's all right. Well, I'm, so I mean, basically, that's my uh, that, that's my list. I was going into this movie thinking that I was going to dislike it because I remember liking it a lot as a kid, but obviously you hear things subsequently and it's often referred to as like one of the lowest points in the Bond franchise and it's the dumb one, the, the one that makes no sense, the one where they went too campy and stupid. And actually it's a lot of fun and it knows it's being campy and silly. Like it's a very knowing film yeah. in the sense of like, like they didn't accidentally make an over-the-top campy romp. Yeah. Like, like they meant to make an over-the-top campy romp, and in that respect, they absolutely succeeded. And it's a very enjoyable film in that it, when you watch it through that lens, I think. I had the same reaction to Spy last week. I mean, Spy, I prefer, and it's better. It's, it's, it's so much better as a film. It's so much better as a film. But I still kind of, this one rollicks along. It's a lot of fun. And even, you know, the space sequences and stuff, I'm sure, Stu, you can't compare them to Thunderball. Like, you're not going <laughs> to... You're not going to look at this film. Well, no, I mean, the thing is, like, funnily enough, when you add, like, space and lasers to those uh, to those things, it tends to liven them up a bit. <laughs> well, they had lasers in Thunderbolt. <laughs> they well, should have. It would have made it much better. Speaking of lasers, can I tell you a little bit about the how they did the laser effects? Yes, please. That, that's Because I remember thinking, like, at the same time, they, they look kind of janky in 2020, but also, like, I was like, that's actually pretty impressive. Like, a lot of a lot of the special effects in this movie are better than I remember. I remember even as a kid thinking they looked a bit weird, and looking at them now, you're like, for 1979, that actually looks pretty impressive. Yeah, and they don't so, look like Star Wars either. Like, no, there's a very... No. 
there's a difference between those the technologies clearly that they've used. Apparently they had been talking to some special effects houses in the US to come on board and do special effects. So they don't say any names, but maybe one of them was Industrial Light and Magic, just saying. Right. Um, I don't know. They, I, I honestly don't know they don't mention it. But they did say that they had a meeting with this one particular group and they went, okay, well, here's our price tag for all this. Oh, and they also wanted like 2% of the film's profit or something like that. Like, oh, yeah, wow. like a really big That's chunk a lot. of cash. <laughs> and Broccoli, Broccoli said, thanks, but no thanks, and showed them out, closed the door, and then said to the rest of the production team and special effects guys, all right, guys, so it's up to you. Right <laughs> 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 away. That, so that sounds guy, like uh, the cubby broccoli I've come to know over the course of this series. <laughs> they got a chap called Derek Meddings. In, in this making of Doco, everyone kind of refers to him as this genius of, of special effects. So he worked with all these models, so they're all on the Pinewood stages. It was Ken Adams' design, the, the mobile space base, but then uh, Derek Meddings, you know, had it built and all that sort of stuff to film. And they would get the elements like the shuttles and the, the moon and the stars, and then they would superimpose by doing this technique where you wind the film back and then you reshoot on the same negative and add another element in. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So huh. you're, you're, like, filming a little bit, the film goes through the camera, you then stop, you rewind that film, you put another element on, and then you shoot again over that negative. But what they had to do is be really careful that elements didn't overlap each other because then you get that sort of transparent image of two things jammed together. And that was particularly tricky with the stars. So what they had to do, because if they just left the stars on, the stars would shine through like the shuttles. So they had like a black wall where they knew where the stars were lit and they would move the shuttle across. And as it went across, they would turn off the lights where the shuttle was and then as it passed by, turn them on again. So it gave the effect of the shuttle going in front of the stars and blocking them. Wow, okay. Oh, that's clever. And then for the lasers, they had, I guess, I'm not sure how, but the light effects, you know, the laser effects, they had to do that all rewinding. And there's one particular scene you might remember, it goes for a fair few seconds, where there's lasers going off everywhere. It's kind of a wide yeah. shot of the whole Yeah, yeah, that, yes. that was awesome. There's the space, you know, both armies, both space platoons fighting each other, laser, laser, laser. To get those effects, they had to do 48 takes on that one bit of negative, 48 passes, which meant that in actual fact the film went through the camera 96 times because, of course, you film it and then you've got to rewind it. So they they did that process 48 times, so that's 96 passes. And they were saying... Any mistake would mean they'd have to start from scratch. Oh, my yeah. gosh. <laughs> so everything was so tightly controlled. And this guy, Derek Middings, is on the on this making of talking about how, I don't even know how we did this. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm shocked that we did it. But by the end, <laughs> by the end, we were so, like, we could do it. Obviously, that wasn't the only scene they did it with, but that was the one with the most effects. Mm. Um, and they just, by the end, they were doing this quite routinely. But he's like, I still am shocked that we actually managed to get that done. And they said <laughs> that these bits of film with the multiple exposures and stuff, they were, like, so precious. And they would be guarded, you know, tightly. Yeah. They were so precious, having represented so many man hours to get done. So <laughs> I thought that was great. Isn't it incredible? And whereas today, incredible. like they just do it in, they just do it in a computer. Yeah. And he was nominated for an Oscar for special effects for sure. 
Moonraker. So I thought I can't was... believe he didn't get it. <laughs> I know. I wonder what did that year. Well, 79, what was he up against? Who knows? Uh, yeah, don't know. No idea. Ah, here we go. I thought I thought so. He was up against not only The Black Hole and 1941, uh, but he was also up against Star Trek The Motion Picture uh, and a little film called Alien, which uh, won that well, year. Yeah. Oh, that one best... Uh, one best visual effects. Oh, visual effects. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's and, and let's be honest, rightly so. Aw. I didn't realise that Alien. Star Trek The Motion Picture came out the same year as Alien. Huh. Yeah, yeah, and, and Moonraker. Because they were, they were all wow. put out like as a result of Star Wars. Star Wars ah. came out and everyone was like, oh, we need to make space movies. Yeah. <laughs> Star Trek was very much uh, about, oh, quick, let's revamp while Star Wars is a thing and go on the bandwagon with this one. And then Yeah, the, exactly. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Star Trek, the motion picture was going to be a TV series. Oh, and, then they, and then they went, terrible. oh, let's make it a movie instead. Is that the first time they have Picard? No, no, no. no, no that's the um, first original. No, that's with the original cast. Yeah, yeah. That's with Kirk and Spock and everyone. But it's set like five years after the end of the series and they all uh, have gone off and done other things. And they all have to come back to fight Vija, this giant... Uh, uh, space machine that's coming to kill Earth. You can tell it was written really quickly because there's at least like an hour and 45 minutes worth of just tracking shots of the oh, Enterprise. They, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they love their it. special effects in that in that movie. They're like, look at these special effects. I this will never age. The storyline. <laughs> it's like Tron. <laughs> yeah. Nothing will ever be better than this. <laughs> and I wonder, because I haven't seen the original Tron don't. <laughs> or the Star Trek movie that you are referring to. By your comparison, does Moonraker stack up better than both of those? Oh, uh, f- no. oh I don't know. <laughs> I mean, certainly it doesn't stack up against Alien. Come on. Well, <laughs> no. I'm not referring to that. I'm referring to Tron and the Star Wars one. I'm not referring to sure. Alien. Also, Alien's like on board a spaceship, isn't it? They're not actually firing lasers in space, are they? Uh, no, no, no. But, no, but there's a lot of there's weapons. a lot of and, and it has a lot of um cool creature work and, and like yeah. there's the the space jockey scene and all that sort of thing. Oh, uh, so it's right. yeah. I haven't seen any aliens movies. I'm sorry. I've just had <laughs> other things. Okay. I just had to rewatch Gentlemen Prefer Blondes a lot as a teenager. So just, <laughs> don't at me. Okay? Look, I mean, you're not wrong to have done so, but <laughs> don't at me. I don't need it. Uh... <laughs> When I first saw Alien, I was watching it with my dad, and I think I was like 17 or something, and there's like a jump scare when you first properly see the alien in like um, the, the air vent, and I remember getting so scared that I jumped out of my seat and yelled, ah, shit! <laughs> dad laughed and laughed at me. <laughs> is that is that the famous scene where the alien does jazz hands? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, it does jazz hands. Yeah, I, it does this. It does this thing. The shot lingers for about half a second too long because the the guy in the alien suit kind of like puts his hands out and like waves them around in what would have been very scary if they'd cut the thing about half a second before they do, and instead he's just sort of left there in this pose shaking his hands. It's very uh, weird. Singular sensation. <laughs> yeah. and- yes, exactly. <laughs> Probably why in um in Spaceballs you yeah, have the, yeah, the alien yeah, the thing going hello my baby hello my honey. <laughs> I have seen oh. Spaceballs, so there you go. Uh, Great film. <laughs> <laughs> that was very fun. What are you, Colonel Sanders? Chicken. Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, other things that I wanted to talk about uh, from this film include the waterfall stunt with the boat. 
So did you notice, uh, this is in the Uguzu Falls, this is the second biggest waterfall in the world, and Cubby Broccoli saw it and went, yes, we're definitely going to film here and have a really cool stunt. And the first thing they wanted to do was have the hang glider shot over the Uguzu Falls. Right, which is amazing. I love that he pulls out a hang glider. Yeah, he pulls a hang glider out of the boat. It's so Roger Moore. That's like his signature at this point. Yes, loves a hang glider, but no cigar. No cigar, yeah. All of the shots you see are filmed kind of elsewhere because they could not get the hang glider shot over the waterfall because the pressure of the water and, like, the mix of the water. Look, I'm not a weather person or a water specialist or a hydrologist, whatever you'd call it, but there's something to do with, like, wind patterns and updrafts and the water pressure and this hang glider could not get close enough without being, like, battered all around. Uh So that shot was out. And then do you notice when Roger Moore, he gets his hang glider out and he's off, but you don't see his boat go down the waterfall? Did you notice that? Oh, okay. Ah. I, did, I didn't. I noticed it this time, which I thought was really interesting. I was like, oh, you don't see his – what happened to his boat? Did I miss something? No. You see Jaws go over in his yeah. boat, and that was all done with models back at Pinewood. But what happened was they had this boat – and they tried to send it over the waterfalls. I don't know what kind of permissions or whatever they got, but they're like, yeah, 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 just send a boat over, it's fine. So they had this boat, but they had this is a raging torrent leading up to a waterfall. So they had to get it into position and like hold on to it. And it was this very technical operation where they would have, okay, we're going to have it here, we're going to let it loose, and then it'll go over at this point. But nobody's ever tried it. They don't know what's going to actually happen. So right. when they let this boat go, it goes, smashes into a rock. Oh, no. <laughs> of course. And gets stuck on a rock oh. at the edge of this massive waterfall. <laughs> Someone didn't need the hang glider after all. It's a reasonably sized boat, but compared to the scale of the waterfall, it's kind of a pipsqueak. So then they do the most amazing James Bond stunt that you never actually see in a Bond film. They realise that they, I think they try to like poke it with sticks or something. I don't know how they, they got there. <laughs> Just got a really long stick. <laughs> Eventually they realise, oh, it's really stuck there. So one of the stuntmen uh, or, you know, supervisors went, I know, let's hook me up to the underside of a helicopter. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> fly me in. Sure. And I'll just, like, give it a nudge and then try and, like, push it out. I think he, they went out there on the first run and for some reason it didn't work. <laughs> idea because they didn't have the right equipment or something. And, they, and it was like, oh, I actually need more purchase this way or I need to go in that way. Okay, let's do it again. So they go in again, same thing, flying in under a helicopter <laughs> And this guy's telling the story of how he did this. Yes. And everyone went, yeah, sure, okay, let's do that. Tries to move the boat and then all of a sudden he hears this like ping, 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 ping sound and realises it's his harness and the connection to the helicopter starting to like disintegrate. (laughs) Why? And so at that point he went, okay, well, I can't fix this and was like, you know, raise me back up, let's go. And they hooked him back up before he like fell to his death. And so they left and they came back the next day and the river had risen overnight with like rainwater or something and the boat was gone. So So problem solved. <laughs> that's why that's why you never see it fall into the waterfall because they couldn't get the shot. So these You're gonna have to rewatch it. <laughs> the waterfall is so mighty they couldn't do this sort of stunt. And of course, again, now you just paint it in on the computer. But yeah. they were trying to do it for real. And I, I kind of like the 
I like the fact that all of this stuff was done for real or done, you know, not in computers. Yeah, exactly. We, we will get to Bond films that do some of it in computers reasonably yeah. soon, <laughs> and they're not great. I mean, I don't think they really do until Die Another Day, but yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of Die Another Day specifically. Yeah. <laughs> so something else I wanted to mention was Bernard Lee, who plays M. This was his last film as M. Oh, is it? Yeah, he died of stomach cancer in 1981, so I think just before The Your Eyes Only comes out. Um, right, okay. So who? what happens after this? I can't even remember. Me neither, but I think they get another guy. <laughs> we'll find out next week. Yes, we will. I think they just get another guy in to play M. What I can't remember is if he's supposed to be the same M or a different M, and M's just a title and, you know, like Judy Un- Depp. Unlike Bond, like, M is just a title. <laughs> Admittedly, I, um, I, d- I haven't really watched For Your Eyes Only that many times. Like, there's a lot oh, of Bond neither. films that I've watched over and over again and others that I've only watched, like, maybe once. Yeah, For Your Eyes Only is definitely one of my least viewed Bond films, so that'll be interesting. But, yeah, so I thought it's worth a shout-out to Bernard Lee, who's always good value as M. I also wanted to talk a bit about Jaws and what you guys thought of him becoming a goodie because (laughs) what happened was apparently Eon Productions was inundated with fan mail from kids. Like, kids loved Jaws. Yeah, he's the best. That (laughs) were... Hugh was one of those kids. As he, I mean, he's he's so instantly iconic. It's it's yeah. fantastic. Well, he just survived the going over the falls for goodness' sake. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> He is indestructible. So what happened was they got so much fan mail from kids that said, I don't want Jaws to be a baddie. Why can't he be a goodie? And that's why they haven't kind of changed at the end of the film on the they spaceship. Should, they should get fan mail from my son because he loves the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely um, would not root for a bad guy to become good. He is just like, no, 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 stay evil. Hooray. <laughs> I'm a bit concerned. I love that Jaws... At the very start, the pre-credit sequence, and he pushes Bond out of that aeroplane. He's obviously working for someone else entirely, <laughs> and then and then he gets recruited by Drax after. Yeah, because Dra- Drax uh, calls up uh, henchman R Us, I guess. Yes, and, <laughs> and, so, oh, and yes, I, I like him. Can we and just him? There's that great shot of Jaws ducking through airport security and the buzzer going off, and yeah. he just smiles at the customs officer, <laughs> freaks out. Did you notice at the beginning with that whole pre-credit sequence and he falls into a circus tent? What is it with Bond films and referencing circuses? This is like the fourth reference now and it's not going to be the last. <laughs> Very much not. Well, there's Diamonds Are Forever. I should have written them all down, but I, I swear you guys were talking about it. There was like a circus in, um, oh, it's referenced in The Man with the Golden Gun. because doesn't, Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He was a trick, a trick shot in a circus. Oh, yes. yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, obviously there's the uh, the infamous one. It, is, it, is it Octopussy where he dresses up as a clown? That's the... Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking speaking of clowns, I do want to talk about the um, Rio de Janeiro section. Yeah. Bond has a dalliance. This, this is one of the films where normally Bond, look, I could be wrong. I'm trying to think. But normally Bond, he kind of sleeps with one woman and then she inevitably dies. In this case, she gets hunted by dogs. It's a very Ramsay Bolton-esque moment. Yes. Set these dogs after um to that woman. And it's not really clear why she helps Bond. She's he has a magic penis. Magic penis. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I totally forgot. How could I forget? It seemed less logical of a penis this time. <laughs> 
a less logical magical penis but yes so so she gets hunted down by dogs and this very ethereal kind of running through the forest in this flowing white dress it's a very quite a long sequence where she's sort of running in terror and the dogs are chasing her and it was, it was a very picnic at hanging rock-esque it was picnic at hanging rock mixed with uh taylor swift's music video for out of the woods <laughs> which is a very specific reference but Look, go look up that video clip and you'll know what I mean. <laughs> kind of a fair bit of that in there. Lots of running through the woods. I think she's being chased by wolves or something at one point. That's why it reminded me of that uh, swishy dress sort of thing. Oh, Kate Bush style running. Kate Bush was approached to sing the theme song, Moonraker. Oh, well, that would have ruled. Why didn't she do that? I don't know. She she turned it down, I think. But a whole bunch of people were approached for it. And so Shirley Bassey only got called up at quite the last minute. And she didn't want it. She felt that it wasn't her song. So she didn't do anything to promote it. Like she didn't release it as a single. It's not right. really a Shirley Bassey-esque song when you think about no. it. Like it's well, really, it's one of my least favourite themes, I have to say. You know, I I've always really liked it. Oh. <laughs> well. Like, it's so dreamy and wistful and romantic and, I don't know, I just, I've always liked it. And I, it, it. She does, or she did subsequently after, a, you know, decade or so, 15 years or so, start to sing it as, you know, one of her repertoire. But she didn't for the longest time. And I'm like, I think it's a lovely... Yeah, I just, it's the kind of song, very lullaby-esque. I mean, my, my take on it is that I, I don't hate it and I don't love it. I always just forget it as soon as it's finished playing. Yeah, you know, it doesn't it's have just the kind same. Of, it's just there. It's not, it's not the worst Bond theme, but it's like, okay, yep, it just that, that's a Bond theme. It doesn't have the same bombastic kind of sound to it that you usually expect from a Bond theme. Yeah, exactly. And especially but then again, the, like, sorry, Stu, I, I was about to say, it's again kind of like, the Spy Who Loved Me, which also had a very dreamy intro song as well. Yet yeah, another... another way they're trying to ape that film, exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, given that Shirley Bassey sang Goldfinger and Diamonds Are Forever, two yeah. iconic Bond themes, and then they're like, oh, and also Moonraker, I guess. Like, yeah. <laughs> and Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which was never a formal Bond song. But no, that's true, yes. For Thunderball. Just to go back to Jaws for a moment, the scene on the cable car... Because that's that's like a big cable car ride, trolley experience, transport method. Sure. Between, you know, the top of Sugarloaf Mountain in Rio and, and the bottom. So this is this great big cool stunt that they do. But it seems initially like Jaws is up at the top with Holly and Bond. But then he's Yes, I, I thought, yeah, down yeah. The they get a cable car down and then he stops the chain, the cable <laughs> chain, the chain car. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and then he gets one and he has a guy helping him for the only time in the film who helps bring a cable car up so he's on the one coming up to meet bond coming down so how did he know that they were up there how did he see them and then later after they they managed to hang glide down the cable to the bottom and jaws then follows down or the, the guy helping him down at the bottom makes his cable work again and he keeps like nodding at the guy going speed up speed up how did he see him they're like <laughs> it's like a hundred meters plus away and he's just looking at him going yeah like faster faster i'm like who can you can't see i think it's because henchmen are prescient they have this ability to psychically know where anyone is going to be at any time because like it's exactly like that in, in rio how did he know where he was going to be in rio and then go and follow the girl they just... Dressed they, up as a giant clown, man. Yeah, 
Yeah. Oh, this is the other thing I wanted to mention. Yes, that's what I was talking about. I was talking about Bond having sex with a number of women. As as is your want. You'll just start talking about that whenever, like at random points. He does have sex with a lot of women in this film. (laughs) But in this film, he does. There's three. And normally it's two, but with like a flirtation with another one. Like in Spy, there's the woman who he's sort of kissing and then he uses her as a human shield. So it's not quite the full deal. I don't think that totally counts. Is that first base? (laughs) So he gets on with the hot chick on the plane who then betrays him. And there's a lovely recurring gag he does with Moneypenny where he turns up to see her and goes, she's like, oh, where have you been? Yes. Fell out of a plane without a parachute. And she's like, no, you liar. She's like, you don't believe me, do you? And then later on he said, I went over a waterfall or something without a boat or something like that. And she scoffs and doesn't believe him. That's great. It's a really good gag. But, yes, so he, he goes to Rio and he's met by a local agent you know, who helps him out, Manuela. Yes, yeah, yeah. Gorgeous, gorgeous woman who's in this incredibly easily accessible nighty with a <laughs> blue ribbon around her waist. And he just says, how can we kill five hours in Rio and pulls the... And then they go out to Carnival and then they go to find the factory, like Drax's local factory. And Bond shimmies up the drain pipe to go and have a look and she stays in the alleyway. And he says, don't talk to any strange men. Ha, 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 ha. Because then... Jaws is dressed up as the giant clown man and follows her down the alley. Now, I just want to point out that I think that shot of Jaws in the giant clown suit coming down the alley at her is the single most terrifying shot in any Bond movie. It is. It's horrifying. (laughs) When did It come out? 86. So, yeah, it wouldn't be a reference to It then, would it? No, I think it's just literally taking a kind of costume from Carnival. Yeah, it's like a Carnival thing, yeah. But then It's it's, not happy. It's terrifying. It's terrifying, (laughs) but in the context of Carnival, it probably wasn't. The whole idea was that, you know, it's the fact that we know, even though we haven't seen Jaws in the costume yet, we kind of know that it's him. Like, the way he's kind of, again, terminating his way or draculating, as we said. Um, <laughs> and as a kid, I remember that moment terrified me. I actually forgot that she, that he doesn't kill her. I thought that he kills her. Well, it's pretty tense because, like, she doesn't stand a chance. He's a, no. he's a giant. He's a giant. <laughs> he's just swept away in the crowd. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's party goers who are like, come on, funny clown man, let's come <laughs> hang out with us. And but I like how they both, it's like they're both members of like the John Wick Society where they're not letting on to, to normies that they're spies and, and they're engaged in a bit of a battle. Because once those people come along, she doesn't say, please help me. Both of them start pretending like nothing's wrong. Yeah. Like, he, it's just he, weird. He picks her up and sort of jigs her about a bit. and then Yeah, Bob, he's like, oh, aren't we having fun? Yeah, the first group <laughs> pass and Bond's kind of shimmying back down the drain pipe, sees him going in for the bite, drops down on top of him, kind of tries to punch him, and then another crowd comes along and sweeps him away, and they're kind of looking at each, looking at each other like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can, I, can I just say, I love I'll that. I'll be back. <laughs> that's definitely like a thing that carried over from the last movie where Jaws and Bond have this weird knowing looks that they share all the time where they're just sort of like, oh, hello again. Like exactly. Just through the whole thing. It's crazy. I love never, it. They never talk. The only time he sort of talks to him is at the end in the uh, Moonraker where he says that our docking system has jammed. Mm. You release us. And he's like, sure. Well, he doesn't say that, but he he nods it. Gives um, a thumbs up. Gives it a thumbs up. Yeah, I just really love that moment 
for invoking a real primal terror in me as a kid. And I still find it really spooky. And I think it was a really clever way to integrate the carnival footage that they did have with then what they did with the movie. Like, okay, well, let's have them go down a side street to find mm. this workshop. So what did you make of Jaws' girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's really interesting is um, she's actually a Mandela effect because a lot of people on the internet claim that they swear that they remember her with braces. And she, she obviously doesn't have braces. But Jesus there is... Christ, I do. That That yeah. is absolutely true. I, I, I remember thinking I thought she had braces. Yeah, no, it's it's one of those Mandela effect things like um, Shazam. And I wonder something. if that's like a teeth thing. Yeah, well, it seems obvious. Why on earth would she not have braces? Yeah, it's surely like, she would makes, have braces and it's like, ah. Oh. Makes sense. Yeah. It's just like now it's just that she has this weird kink for tall guys with metal mouths. <laughs> Not to kink shame, but <laughs> but she does she does tellingly have a pair of glasses, which oh, means yes. that she's genetically inferior. Somehow. Oh yes, <laughs> and I love that. I love and she's that she's very like, short. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah, she's, she's very short. She has glasses. I love that. Like the implication is that she would be the issue in Drax's perfect world, <laughs> not Jaws, not who, who obviously has gigantism, a genetic disorder. Well, then, but them being together, where it would all even out. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah, you just get one normal-sized person. I assume that it was both of them. Like, both of them were genetically malformed in Drax's eyes. Okay, yeah, yeah, possibly. I mean, the, the implication that I got was that he was referring to the fact that she was wearing glasses, which yeah. seemed hilarious to me. Well, you know, you're not supposed to pray in a temple if you wear glasses, aren't you? Isn't that the Old Testament? Like, oh, God, is it? Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a glasses rule in the Old Testament. Like, if you can't see properly, you're defective of sight, then you can't pray in a... Oh, man. <laughs> Natalie, are you telling me there's some problematic elements in the Bible? I know. It, you, you wouldn't think it. Um... It's just that one, Stu. Don't yeah, worry. Just, just the one. Okay, yeah, just like, the let's, one. Not, let's, not, let's be fair. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, so I, I find Jaws uh, very terrifying. But I did see in the making of at the very end, they have some outtakes from shooting. And there's these really fun outtakes of them on the space station where, like, Bond and Holly are looking out of a window, obviously, at something, and Jaws walks behind them. So you know where the bit where they turn around and they realise he's standing behind them? Yes. And he grabs them. So he walks behind them and just kind of reaches out and tickles under Roger Moore's chin <laughs> and keeps walking. Like, he gives him a tickle. And then you see Roger Moore, like, genuinely laughing, and it's so endearing. Because Roger Moore's all suave again in this movie and lots of lots of dry quips and he, he looks quite good when they have him at Drax's estate all in black and he's kind of got the open collar shirt and he's sneaking mm. around in black and like, oh, that really suits him as opposed to the the elbow patches on the on the grey suits but as opposed to the weird mud coloured suits they keep putting him in yeah and the <laughs> safari suit at the end is pretty good when he gets out of the boat and he's in the safari suit the <laughs> oh, oh and and then I mean I don't know whether we want to to skip all the way to the end yet but this does have maybe one of the best final lines in a Bond film. Yes, I was, going, I, I was hoping we would we would talk about that because I think hands down it is the best final line. I can't believe I didn't write it down in my uh, list of things because, yeah, what I love is they raise the stakes so much. They're like, we've got onboard cameras that are going to give us a video feed. Yes. Live view to the Queen. Yeah, it's going to be broadcast to the President of the United States and Her Majesty the Queen. <laughs> And M is sitting there and uh, the defence minister. And then it's like two Bond and Holly under some sheets. 
because obviously the spaceship had some sheets and all of their clothes like floating in the background and they're making out in zero G and he said, what is 007 doing? I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, mwah. (laughs) It's perfect. It's a weirdly explicit line when you think about it. (laughs) Yes, but I'm so glad they gave it to Q. Yes. Because the way Q delivers it has this technical naivety to it. Like, yeah, yeah that's right. Because he's the nerd, you know, and he's like, oh, I think they're attempting re-entry. He's attempting re-entry. And they're having sex. Uh, <laughs> and then Bond looks up and looks right into this camera. Like, how did like, how surely, did he know? Surely they must, you know, these are Drax's ships. How did they know the technology on board? Like, Bond yeah, must have I told know. them, tune in around this time. And we'll give you a show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but I also do want to talk about at the very start of the film when we see the Moonraker get hijacked off the back of Boeing uh, 747. Like, so ridiculous. Who puts a fully loaded with fuel space shuttle on the back of a 747? I would would like to know, is that how they would transport it around? Is that how you transported Uh, shuttles? Actually, I was going to say that they did, for for training missions, they used to load the space shuttles on the back of of 747s and fly them around for training purposes. So, yes, there is actually actually precedence for that. Surely it wouldn't be filled with fuel. (laughs) But normally, yeah, I would imagine they wouldn't be fully loaded with fuel that you could just get in and take off and blow up the the, the aircraft. I'd like your opinion about how the storyline comes into it is that the shuttle goes missing and that's how MI6 gets involved. It's like go try and figure out what happened to the shuttlecraft and go and speak to Drax and then everything happens in this film. There's so many different things and then you finally get to the end where it's almost like Roger Moore suddenly realises, oh hang on a second yeah that's (laughs) right, the shuttle why did you steal the shuttle back by the way? And Drax was just like, oh I realised I needed it and that's it. Yeah. That's all we get. I realised I needed it. It's so lame, too, because that's the whole reason he came to anybody's attention. Yes. It's because he was down a ship. It's like, A, you couldn't build another one? Or or just work out how to do your mission into space with the other five Moonrakers that you have. Yeah, that's right, exactly. (laughs) And not only that, like, like, I mean, first of all, the shuttle is a reusable craft, right? Yeah. It's called a shuttle for a reason. It's meant to go back and forth. So you wouldn't need six of them that make one journey. You would need two or three that just go back and forth. You could do a number of trips. No trips back, because remember, he's setting off the globes. No, no, sure. But I mean, like, once everyone's on the space station, you're set, right? Like You're making too much logical sense. <laughs> I mean, when you've got a plan, it's all got to happen on the same day. Otherwise, why are you even bothering? <laughs> Look, Can I just say, though, like, it definitely sounds like those lines of dialogue are 1,000% in the script because someone asked that exact question. Yeah, yeah. They were like, hang on, but but why did he steal the thing at the start? He's like, oh, crap. Um, <laughs> uh, because yeah, one of them malfunctioned and he needed to yeah, done. Yeah, great. Is it like, is it a man thing when you do the grocery shopping and instead of going back and forth to the car like two or three <laughs> times, you just have to take all of the bags <laughs> at once? It's an even though. Thing. Yeah, you're like holding them on your head and balancing them under your chin. It was like Speaking that. Speaking as a man, Eloise, I'm very offended by your generalization, <laughs> mostly because it's very accurate. <laughs> so I did, I did find a quote from Sean Connery. 
Oh, that's interesting. So, so did he? Because I mean, we haven't really heard of his opinions of these films. Is that what he was talking about, or Sean Connery, who had played James Bond in six of the first seven films in the series, stated in an interview that I went in London to see Moonraker. Sorry, I should do the accent. I went in London to see Moonraker with Roger Moore. <laughs> And I think it departed so much from any sort of credence from the reality that we had in my six films. He also criticised the film for such a dependence on the effects and there's no substance. (laughs) (laughs) So, not a fan then. (laughs) What I love is that this film, again, was directed by Lewis Gilbert, who'd done The Spy Who Loved Me, who'd done You Only Live Twice, which had Sean Connery, and a giant volcano lair, and a spaceship that ate other spaceships. Yes, that's right, exactly. Well, he didn't mean that one. (laughs) (laughs) Realism. (laughs) Yeah, uh, the kind of grounded realism where you get dressed up as an Asian man to go undercover. (laughs) uh, You know, that's the sort of gritty realism Sean Connery wants in his movies. This is the thing. Yes, the Roger Moore films went crazy wacky. Of course they did, but... Sean Connery seemed to be missing a vital transition point that he was very much a part of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I mean, he, you know, he he drove around a moon buggy for goodness sake in in uh, in Diamonds Are Forever. Like, let's not let's not let's dial back on the criticism there, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start to wrap up. Final thoughts, Eloise. How do you view this film in the Bond canon and as a Bond fan? Well, look, I definitely put it um, separate from the modern day Bond films. Like, I think you can kind of have three categories of Bond. You can have the early era, which is like your Sean Connery's plus Lazenby. Your middle categories, obviously, which is Roger Moore, ridiculousness. And I think this is peak ridiculous and brilliant. And then you've got like your modern day films where you've got like Brosnan and uh, Craig, which are a bit more gritty and, and thrillery, I suppose. So this one, I just sort of fit in the fun category, essentially. And I love it because it's just so silly. We, you've got Bond at his epitome, filled with gadgets, lots of women, lots of action that doesn't make sense. And who cares if it doesn't make sense? <laughs> He's in space, <laughs> goddammit. <laughs> So, yeah, look, I was actually going to say that, um, like, it's in my top five of Bond films. I have GoldenEye. Yeah, I have GoldenEye as number one. Casino Royale as number two. I then put Moonraker. And then I have... Number three. It's it's third. It's number three. Then I have Skyfall. And then I have License to Kill with Timothy Dalton. (laughs) That's my top five. I haven't ranked the other rest of the films because they sort of all get a little bit muddy with, like, the older films because I haven't really watched them as many times. <laughs> so yeah, number three in my top five. <laughs> Stu, what are your thoughts? I definitely agree with Eloise in the in the sense that I think this this film gets a bad rap. Like, like I said before, it's meant to be campy nonsense, right? Like I don't think they I don't think anyone involved was setting out to make a grim and gritty spy thriller. Right? This <laughs> no. was, this is not that movie. This is this is a goofy wacky romp where they end up on a space station having laser battles like it's everything i love about the roger moore era of the franchise and i genuinely do love this aspect of it there are people who hate this type of bond and i just love it i would actually like to see more of it i want to see super spy i want to see super spy crazy sci-fi gadgets i love it it's fantastic 
Yeah. Um, in terms of our rankings, if we if we want to do them now, Eloise, I mean, top three, number three, that's <laughs> that's very high. Um, <laughs> I liked this movie way more than I thought I was going to, because like I said, I, I really liked it as a kid. I've heard some terrible things about it <laughs> since then. And then you're like, okay, well, I think it's going to be pretty bad. And actually, no, it's really fun. I struggled with where to put it because I had a lot of fun watching it. But also, you can't go too crazy, I think, for, for my list anyway. I, I've got to, you know, rein it in a little bit. And so I thought, well, it's definitely, I mean, look, Thunderball is my is my bottom ranked movie. It's definitely better than Thunderball. I guess you have to compare it against some other lower ranked Roger Moore films. So, I mean, we've got Man with the Golden Gun in 10th place for me you know that was that was not great like like we've talked about that already it's not sort of too good live and let die was fairly low down for me and i'm like did i like this movie more than live and let die and i think i did i think i had a lot more fun watching this movie and so that brings it smack into on her majesty's secret service which i was another one that i had heard mixed reviews about and actually ended up really liking and i think that's probably my limit so for me I can't put it higher than On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So it goes for me between On Her Majesty's Secret Service and Live and Let Die. So that that's the spot it sits. So for me, that's that's number seven in my current list. That's really interesting because I, I look, I struggled very similar and I, I think I've come up with a very similar ranking to you. I feel like maybe I'm not being brave enough and putting it higher. <laughs> again, and it's one of those things where I'm finding it really hard between going like, what's the critical list and what's then the fun and if this movie came on tv and i was flicking through channels would i stop and go oh yeah moonraker's on like and and i definitely would and i probably would with from russia with love as well but from russia with love is is a better film but if i had to choose between this film i ranked live and let die higher than on her majesty's secret service and i definitely enjoy this more than live and let die so i think i have to put it higher after from russia with love so above Live and Let Die, which I think for me makes it one, two, three, four, five, six on my list. Right, okay. So similar kind of rationale. I could make an argument for it going in ahead of Dr. No in terms of silly fun. Right. But I just think in terms of that real emotional connection that I, I keep maintaining that I've had with Dr. No and from Russia with Love, I, the only other thing is do I put it in between the two of those? But I, I think I'm comfortable with it sitting just under From Russia with Love. I think that's a fairly safe yeah. that's so, a fairly safe bet. From Russia with Love is a pretty good movie. Yeah. So I've, I've got Goldfinger, Spy Who Loved Me, Diamonds Are Forever, Doctor No from Russia with Love, Moonraker, Live and Let Die, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I feel like there's a good spread there at the top of the three Bonds that we've had so far. Yeah, totally. And I know that this will change with Pierce Brosnan anyway. Don't know about Timothy Dalton. That's the unknown factor. He's the X factor. Yeah. But definitely there'll be a Brosnan thrown up in the top there. I know that. Yes, there, there is definitely at least one, well, one Brosnan that, that <laughs> definitely gets thrown up the top and then a couple down the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all agree on that. <laughs> well, that's that's this podcast. Eloise, thank you so much for joining us. Thank uh, you very I, much for having me. Can I just ask, am I actually the first female guest you've had? <laughs> definitely. <laughs> you've only ever had male guests <laughs> we have and as as roger moore would say a woman <laughs> <laughs> i'm on glad a podcast, you noticed <laughs> a woman on a podcast mm. yes so i'm sure there's plenty of things that i've forgotten to talk about with this movie because there is a real lot of stuff in this movie but we have canvassed a good deal so thank you eloise Stu, have you drawn any lessons from moonraker that can apply in your day-to-day life 
Uh, <laughs> try to avoid cable cars wherever possible. Yeah. <laughs> Eloise, anything else? Don't ever go on a plane without a parachute. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned don't hide down dark alleys if there is any chance of a clown being in the vicinity. <laughs> There's nothing scarier than a clown in the moonlight. <laughs> Well, with that, we bring to an end another podcast. So until next time, I'm Natalie. And I'm Stu. And we're shaken. Not stirred. Just like the Do you know, if you held a gun to my head right now, I could not sing that song to you. I have, I have no idea. It leaves my head as soon as I hear it. Really? It's gone. Sure. You, you guys are singing it? It, it? It's disappearing as soon as it enters my head. <laughs>